What an awesome song. I uh, uh, was telling first service that uh, we had a it is well moment. It wasn't uh, probably as tragic as uh, Horatio might have uh, experienced, but certainly it was tragic for our family a little bit, or almost tragic. Uh, I was driving in our truck on the way. You know, you have like awesome plans sometimes of how like my day is going to go and Looking forward to like your Saturday, how everything's going to be wonderful. We were on our way to Deception Pass and made this like lunch and we decided to bring our dog and he decided to jump on I-5 out of the truck at 50 miles an hour um, and live. Um, it was a crazy, scary experience. I was just about to get on I-5 and I forgot to tether him, which note to self, especially when you're driving in front of a state patrol, you might want to... Uh, tether your dog it's the law um but he uh he decided to leap out which is just unusual and has never happened but he leaped out and proceeded to luckily not run into the all the car traffic and cause a 14 car pileup because he's a saint bernard so he's like 140 pounds and like a big boy so he decided instead to take an exit and exited off marine view drive um, and I stopped and tried to catch him, but he was like, imagine like a bloody mess running at, like a gazelle as fast as he can down into uh, Everett. And uh, wow, kids are bawling. Um, so I had all three kids in there and my wife is, Kaylin, bless her heart, freaking out a little bit. And uh, one kid is crying that we're going to have to buy a new dog. And my other oldest son is preaching to the other saying, well, if he dies, he's going to hell. I'm like, what is going on? So, <clears throat> me, I get into a mode, and I'm like, when, like, trauma happens, I'm just like, we will deal with this. And, you know, I don't <clears throat> get real emotional. And uh, uh, so, Kayla is arguing with Fisher about where he read that um, in the Bible. <clears throat> as uh, I'm trying to figure out how to find the dog. He's like, I read it in the book of Revelation. I'm like, what are you talking about? So, we drive down, and God was just gracious. I mean, amazingly so. Um the fact that uh, I drove down and took a right instead of a left just because, and I saw him, pulled up, the state patrol followed us the entire way, um, and uh, proceeded to tell me that it was a criminal um, act to not tether your dog, and I was like, fantastic, here's my license, and then ran off to find my dog, um, of which he wouldn't come to me because he was freaking out and a bloody mess, and uh, honestly began to pray, and got back, and Kids are bawling, wife is bawling, and I'm like, this is not good. So uh, the police officer, by grace, just let us go and said, uh, um, you know, basically, you're an idiot, in those words. And uh, then we got in and started to look and drove around for like 25 minutes. And I think sometimes we're very, um, how do I say, flippant about the power of prayer, and we spiritualize it, and we pray about when we, you know, get a really bad sickness, but we don't pray about the normal things of life. And so our kids are bawling, and some way to get them under control, we're like, let's pray, kids. Let's pray that he's okay. Let's pray that we find him. I didn't think we were going to find him. About five seconds, ten seconds after we pray, and I've been driving all over. I drove down um, closer to the river, and uh, next thing you know, I see him running right towards us. And uh, so we grabbed him, and I put him in the back of the truck. And now it was filled with blood, and I was covered with blood, and he tried to jump out again, even though he was tethered and hang himself. So um, we eventually got him to the vet, and he didn't break a single bone. Um, he had some bruising and, and hurt and you know stuff, but 
It was just an evidence. I think one of those little things we overlook. Um, we can be like, I honestly started going, man, we were lucky. And the vet's like, you were lucky. And Kalen, who is much more spiritual than me, I'm the pastor, figured that one out, um, was just thanking God for his grace. Uh, and so, um, scary but good story. He's recovering and, and fine, but uh, it's just that, you know, um, moments of grace that I think we're dismissive of is uh, pretty awesome to celebrate when, even if I think he would have died, there were still a lot of moments of grace there. And I guess, you know, we could go home and he might be laying there, you know, with Jesus, we hope. So that's what we'll tell our kids, whether they go to hell or not. I'm not really going to develop a theology on that quite yet. So um, obviously my son has. So we're going to be in the book of James today, though. Um, and uh, just a quick, oh, we'll have to do the announcement for the youth thing. So next week, sorry, there's a youth uh, for the youth group, junior high and high school, they're going to meet between services. It was supposed to be this week, so if you were connect, wanted to connect with that, that's next week. Um, apologize that we have lights here and not here. They're coming. We got them back there. We just didn't. So it's not like, you know, you're the, the bride and the groom or something. It's just that uh, we were in process, so you can read your Bibles and you can't. Uh, we're in James today, and we're starting a new series that I'm just really excited about. Um, I typically don't wear my Ghostbusters t-shirt, but I thought today was, uh, you know, appropriate. Um, and as I was thinking about uh, this series we're calling Retro Faith, not to be really hip, we were going to call it something else, but this just made sense for what it is. Uh, I was thinking about everyone kind of has their own era that they celebrate, that they enjoyed, that they think this was the best of times. And really it's only because it was, the, it was the best years because it was their years and it was when they grew up. And me, I'm a child of the 80s. I love the 80s. I love that uh, the Mountain and 1945 play 80s music, which is just horrific yet wonderful at the same time. I love 80s movies, and there's a lot of stuff that you may not remember that came from the 80s, so I thought I would just kind of give you a little bit of a walk down memory lane for some people who grew up in the 80s or grew through the 80s and wanted to forget it. I'm bringing it back. Um, First and foremost, MTV, which is like the best and the worst thing that ever happened to culture and TV, but it was the 80s. The DeLorean car, remember Back to the Future DeLorean car, of which went out of business because they were shipping drugs in it, but they're still really cool because the doors and all that stuff. Always wanted one. John Hughes films, uh, if you've seen those films, those are the films that just made high school really cool uh, or terrible. Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller, that kind of stuff. Um, Nintendo, yeah, 80s, that's where it was from. Ronald Reagan. Rest in peace. Um, Miami Vice. I don't know if you remember Miami Vice. I don't know why I remember that. Probably shouldn't be watching that at that age, but I did. Top Gun, Karate Kid. Just showed my kids Karate Kid for the first time, and I was like, I just loved it. I just was really enjoying it. Ralph Macchio looks the same today as he did back then. I'm sure he looks the same back in whenever he was born. He, like, never ages. He's just got, like, the same kid face with gray hair now, I think, today. Uh, Ghostbusters, Transformers. Yeah, 80s. That's where it all started. Um, Guns N' Roses, Prince, who was like first Prince and then something, and then now I think he's Prince again, I don't know, uh, he's a crazy guy. Um, Cabbage Patch Kids, yes I had them, I had several, I had three in fact, uh, I admit it, uh, my grandparents owned a toy store so we got all like the cool toys and then back then it was like, you know, you get to adopt kids and that was still kind of freaky too. Uh, Underoos, I don't remember Underoos, I had Incredible Hulk, Batman, Superman, and I was like, Superhero in underwear. It was rad. Um, there was a time. Today they wear jeans where uh, they're like, look like they're wearing like spandex. They're just like, especially guys. It's just like, wow, that's just weird, I think. But it's just the style today. Back in my time, what we did was, you may remember this, but we would take our jeans 
and then fold them over and then fill them really tight, I could still do it. Check this out, huh? You know, I was like, that was cool. And I used to do it so tight that, like, my feet were turning purple because, like, the tighter you could do it, the cooler you were. And it was, um, you know, and then there was the big hair, right? There was the, the big hair, the crimped hair, the colored hair, uh, or anything uh, like that, or mullet style, which, or I called it soccer cut, uh, but it was really just a mullet. But the reason I bring that up is because there's these eras that a lot of us, whether you grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever, that we have this you know, affinity for and we love. And, and, and if you're younger, you'll think back of like, oh, remember the iPod and you know, all those things you get excited for. And there are some things, let's be honest, that we hope go away and that never come back. Um, and the strange thing is that the Bible says they're going to come back. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1.9 is an interesting verse to think about in this sense. It says, what has been, Solomon speaking, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And we begin to see these, these things come back. And so today we're, we're talking about retrofaith, and next week there'll be a study guide uh, to go through this. And it's free. Uh, we just need to get it printed this week. And in it has uh, a little bit of a, a commentary of the section we're going over. has some questions for kind of personal application. It has some family questions. So you can actually sit down with your family, whether it be just a bride or, I guess, yourself in the mirror or your kids. And you actually ask them some questions about the sermon that they'll be either hearing or, or hearing something similar to it in, uh, in the kids stuff. But uh, the word retro... Uh, comes from um, that Latin prefix retro, and it basically talks about backwards or, or past times. And when we talk about um, retro in our culture, it implies that this is movement toward the past in some way as a way of progressing to the future. And it's a, it's a term that's often used in, in our culture today to talk about those outdated, you know, and those age trends that we kind of grew up with, whether the 80s, whatever, and sometimes they're in our culture styles and fashions, and you've seen like retro furniture probably, and retro art, and retro cars, and retro clothes, and those types of things, but it emphasizes this throwback to the past, that's kind of the, the understanding of it, and you, you're bringing those, those elements, whatever they are, from an earlier time, and you're breathing new life into them for today. So, when we speak about our culture, the word retro is usually used in a, in a very positive sense, and it's used quite a bit today in particular. And it refers to kind of quirky products and, and things of that nature. But when you talk about retro faith, it is meant to be positive in some sense, but it's also meant to be a very strong critique of our faith today as compared to um, the past. And I would say in particular, compared to maybe the 50s. But I mean the 50s A.D., not the 50s like the 1950s. And so, sadly, I think, and I say this sadly in some sense and not in others, but sadly the Christian faith has changed quite a bit. I'm not talking about the expression of it, but the faith itself has changed quite a bit since James wrote his letter, and not all for the better. Um, there are many people who agree that, that church has changed, that... Uh, you know, we need to, a lot of people will cry out, like, we need to get back to the Acts 2 church, right? And, and the New Testament church. And then they'll, they're thinking that this, this community is just kind of happens naturally. If we could just get back there, it'd be great. And they, they fail to read books like 1 Corinthians that show how messed up the first church was back then, too. 
and that there were still inherent problems in, in what was going on. But this isn't called retro uh, church, it's called retro faith. And without question, I think the clothes of the body of Christ, the things that clothe that body, need to change in some sense the style or the, the outworkings of it. Um, you don't want to pretend like it's you know 1975 in church anymore. I mean, the pipe organ's fun to use every now and then and be retro about it, but every sermon, every Sunday, I don't know if that's really what we want. Um, but I wonder that if even by accident or possibly by choice, that we have grown out or progressed past, not the things that clothe our faith, but actually the things that define the faith. That is actually even scarier to me. And I'm not the first, nor will I probably be the last, to ask if our faith has lost something. There are critics in the church and without that uh, claim the church is dead, that the faith is irrelevant, um, that the proverbial sky is falling and that we're out of touch now. And the scary thing is that in an effort to resuscitate the faith and to bring this faith back, they begin to experiment with a lot of stuff. And they begin to experiment with, with new methods and seek out these new experiences. And they even create sometimes new doctrines. And they do what I think is the very opposite of retro. Instead of throwing back to something, they throw out a bunch of stuff that they think is maybe archaic or not relevant anymore. And they start with this, let's define Christianity different. And the word throwback, I think for us, may have the immediate effect of like a little uncomfortable because we think, well, throwback like the 1950s type of faith and where they were very separated from the world and very sectarian and I think driven by really good intentions. Uh, basically, they created what I would call a reactive holiness, where instead of actually really seeking out a true definition of holiness, they would just react to whatever the world was doing. And whatever the world was doing, they probably should do the opposite or condemn it. And so they separated quite a bit. And they lived out their faith and actually defined their faith by how they interacted with the world and how they looked different. Um, but today we have people reacting against that, and they're going all the way into culture, way too far. And it's this Weird thing as, as really the world sits back and watches like Christians strategize about how they're going to reach the world. The one group, they look over and say, you're like holier than thou, way out of touch and up in the woods and not talking to anybody. And you guys over here are the hypocrites because you're just like me, but yet you claim to be something else. And he, they basically make fun of both groups. And I think what we have to be doing is stop actually defining ourselves according to what the world is and how we interact with it. And actually define ourselves as how we respond to God's word. It's not how we respond to the world. It's how we respond to God's word in the world. And so for the next 19 weeks, we're going to study verse by verse the book of James. And unlike James, the Apostle Paul kind of talks about faith in a little bit of a different spirit. Although there's obviously some similarities. But he dedicates much of his writing to how salvation is actually experienced by faith through grace and I think or by grace through faith and James dedicates this letter a little bit differently to how this true genuine authentic saving faith is actually lived out and recognized like how do you know what does it look like and instead of us kind of looking for the next thing like you know let's start from scratch guys what what is Christianity today 
Instead of trying to create new progressive things, I think that we have to actually go back to find out what the heart of our faith is. And everyone loves James, this guy who's writing, and you may really enjoy the book of James, but they love James the writer because he seems like that really awesome, soft pastor guy who would just love and love and love and wear a sweater vest and love to play boggle if he wanted to, and just like the nicest guy in the world. But if they actually read what he writes, um, it's very different. He doesn't tolerate a certain, some things. He doesn't tolerate the religious facade that a lot of people put up to pretend that they have, quote, faith, even using those terms. He doesn't tolerate false confessions. He doesn't tolerate disguises of piety. It makes him sick. And he doesn't use a lot of huge theological terms. He talks in such plain language that you can't go, well, give to the poor. What does that really mean? I mean, it's just like, You can't reinterpret it and reinterpret your way out of faith, which people like to do. Pray. What do you mean, pray when? Wisdom from God. Making plans with God's wisdom. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean, plan. It's like, he doesn't try to complicate it. And the other thing that he does is he pushes us into a real faith for us to ask some really, really hard questions. Like, do I truly believe? Do I truly believe? So people love and hate the book of James. And it's very dangerous to preach it. Uh, I say dangerous because uh, they love to read the book of James because it's really practical. It's like the books of wisdom. We read Proverbs and it's like, you know, sons, follow your father's wisdom. You're like, all right, that makes sense. It's like very plain. But as you read it, you go, wait, this is really plain and practical. It's very, very, very difficult to live out. You begin to see this very clear picture of what faith looks like. And then you begin to be convicted because it's really instructive, but it's incredibly convicting. Now, the danger, as I said in preaching this book, is that it could stir us to action for the wrong reasons. It could stir us to action in such a way to um, kind of into a works-based salvation. Out of the 108 verses in the book, 59 of them are commands. And it's not too difficult, if you read it wrongly, to make it this kind of checklist of righteousness. I do this. I do this. And if you misunderstand, I think, the book of James as a whole, instead of leading us to the gospel, instead of leading us to the cross where we're fully dependent and desperate for the work of Christ, we can start focusing on our own works and lead us to one or two places, either pride or despair. We take our checklist and we're like, yeah, I pray. I don't judge others. I've got wisdom. And we like, I'm a pretty darn good Christian. And the other place is like, no, no, no. And we feel despairing because, again, we feel so broken and inadequate. And the tension of what we want is the middle, where is the gospel, where we recognize Christ's work so we don't become prideful and we recognize Christ's work so we don't become despairing. But I think without question, if, James is read as those commands. It would be easy to leave just reading it like I'm a moral failure and I stink. Um, But he does, without question, emphasize obedience. He doesn't make any mistake about what he's charging Christians to do. And that is to do what they know they should do and what they say they believe. It's so just like in your face and very easy to dismiss and kind of read and go, yeah, I'm glad he's talking to people like this. It's like, no, he's talking to you. 
and to me. And as you read it, it's very easy for me, I'll be quite frank, as I'm preparing, like, yeah, people really need to hear this. And God will be like, Whoosh! no, you need to hear this. Because just because someone, quote, is a pastor does not mean they have their life all together. It basically means they get beat up twice as much as they learn it and then preach it, beating themselves up as they're preaching it, hearing it, and still leading, hopefully, to the gospel. So James doesn't help because he doesn't really have any formal statements of the gospel in the book. He only mentions Jesus' name twice. But his book is so saturated in the teaching of Christ. It's like a repetition or a repeat of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's, it's incredible. But I want to protect us from the fact that James is not adding a list of works. What he's doing is reacting to what he sees in his culture at the time of the hypocrisy of Christians who say, I'm a Christian, I confess, but don't actually live it out as they should be. And that's nothing new. People are like, well, hey, if you're going to walk the walk, you know, you better not just talk it. Really do it. Right? That's nothing new. But my hope is that this is kind of honestly a little bit of a check on all of us. Now, we're going to go through one entire verse today. It's going to be awesome. James 1.1. As we read this again, I want to make sure that we avoid getting into a place where we're into a works-based kind of salvation, working towards God, and more of, hopefully, an affirmation. Because this is who James is speaking to. He's speaking to those people who are not really believers who say they are, and those people who are saying there are works and certain things that you do that will affirm the fact that you are saved. They will affirm the fact that you actually have faith. So James 1.1 here we go. It's going to be pretty, pretty intense. One verse. <clears throat> James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. How can you make a sermon out of that one verse? Well, we're going to do it. James writes this letter, okay? In ancient times, you can look at all the letters in the New Testament. You'll see that they begin letters with somewhat of an identification of who they are, an identification of their audience, and then some sort of greeting, some longer than others. And it's important for us to be a little educated, because I don't assume we all understand everything, uh, that there are several different Jameses in the Bible. And there are actually three in particular that we'll talk about. The first is uh, James of the Apostles, which is part of that trio of Peter, James, and John. You know, Jesus had his 12 disciples that he really poured into. One betrayed him, Judas. But he had three of those disciples, Peter, James, and John, who he really spent time with. And he really poured into, and they had some unique experiences. That James, part of that trio, suffered martyrdom. He was beheaded by Herod Agrippa. You can read it in Acts chapter 12. So early in the church, he was killed. The second James, as mentioned in Scripture in the New Testament, is uh, part of that apostolic time, and it was a James called the uh, son of Alphaeus. And we hear about him occasionally. He's mentioned uh, in Luke and Acts, I believe. But after the resurrection, really, uh, minus the first chapter of Acts, he's not really mentioned, and you don't hear much about what happened to him. You probably will in, in church history, but not in Scripture. And then third, and the most likely candidate for the writer of this letter, is James, the younger brother of Jesus. Now, we may, you know, you see stuff like Da Vinci Code and things like that. It kind of messes up what actually Scripture teaches. But after Jesus was born, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, virgin birth. So 
after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary got married. Okay? And when they got married, they had other children. And in Matthew 12 uh, and 13, you read about how Jesus actually had brothers and sisters. In fact, when Jesus goes back during his ministry to Nazareth, his hometown, which is like the armpit of like Galilee. So he goes, not Galilee, but Judea, goes in there and they basically go, as he's healing and do all these things and claiming these things, they're like, dude, isn't that Jesus that grew up here? They're like, yeah. They're like, don't we know his mom and dad? Yeah. Don't we know his brothers and sisters? Yeah. So he had brothers and sisters, and one of these brothers was named James. And none of his uh, brothers and sisters believed in him, though. In fact, they went a step further. Uh, as before Jesus uh, died, and he was in that three years of ministry, they actually mocked him. Uh, in John chapter 6, you can read one instance of that. Um, it says in verse 1 of chapter 6 of John, After this, Jesus went, out, went about into Galilee, and he would not go about into Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea. Because he didn't want to go, but he, they uh, kind of uh, challenged him to go. That your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And verse 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And James was most likely included in those brothers who were challenging him to like, hey man, if you really are who you say you are, show the world. And something though happened in his younger brother James. Something changed in his life. And if you read church history, and you can even read it beginning in the book of Acts, around A.D. 44, which is about ten years after uh, Jesus um, has ascended to heaven, shortly after the martyrdom of the first James, Peter, James, and John's James, right after that, Peter is put into prison, then he's released, and James then becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem. And you can read that in Acts, like I said, 12 and 13, I believe. And if you read any church history about James, they call him James the Just. That's kind of the, the term the historians use. And they actually describe him that way because he was just a very godly, pious man. In fact, he was known so much. Jerome, I think, is the one who basically said that they believe he prayed so much that he had camel's knees because he was always on his knees, camels like knees like a camel, on his knees in prayer for his people uh, at the temple. And so, uh, accounts vary a little bit about James' death, but we know he was martyred. He was taken to the top of the temple, basically for insulting, insulting the high priest at the time. And he was thrown off the top of the temple by not, for not recanting. And he may have not even died when he landed, but they stoned him just to be sure. And he was killed right there. And it was such an uproar. James was so loved by the people in Jerusalem, because this is thousands and thousands of people in this church that the Roman proconsul kicked out the high priest at the time because of his death. And so he was a, a guy that loved Jesus, but had changed because there was a time when he mocked Jesus. And the question is, what happened? What happened to this guy to go from a guy who made fun of Jesus, to denied Jesus, basically, who would not accept him because that's my brother, man. He was like, you know, poking fun of me when I was a little kid type of guy, to suddenly leading the church... And dying for his brother. And the only explanation can be is that 
there was an encounter with Jesus somewhere. And that's really pretty much what the experience is for all of us. There was a reason why this church was called Damascus Road. It's because it's the story in Acts chapter 9 of a guy named Paul. Saul at the time, but Paul at the same time. It's just a different uh, Roman name. And Paul was out there killing Christians. And he didn't one day go, you know what? I don't feel like killing Christians anymore. I think this people of the way, is, I think they're, they're probably pretty good people. And they seem like nice I'll just kind of believe with them. No. Jesus showed up, knocked him on his rear, caused him to be blind and said, you're mine now. This is the same thing that happened with James. And Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. It's this little statement that we probably read over sometimes. But in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul is kind of recounting, really detailing the gospel itself, he says this, For I delivered to you, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received from Jesus directly. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then He appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and then to the Twelve. And then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In verse 7, then He appeared to James. He already appeared to the Twelve. Then He appeared to James. He makes a visit to His brother. I've always wondered, and these are the kind of moments you go, I wonder what he said. Like, he's like, you know, Bling! told you so. You know, what did he say? He probably didn't have to say much of anything. But he went in particular to visit his brother who had mocked him and denied him. And was probably still grieving because he's his brother, but never thought he was who he said he was. And this is why it's important that James writes this book. And this sermon or this letter is because this is the kind of faith we're talking about. The true retro faith, the true faith where a guy is in one moment heading that direction. And because of an encounter with Christ, because of a change of heart, not just because of a moral revelation where I'm going to do good now, a complete change of heart. And a guy begins to walk that direction. That's the kind of faith I'm talking about. The kind of faith where you look at an individual and experience and you see a completely different person from those who are mocking Jesus to those who think of complete foolishness to those people who said, this is the truest thing I can believe and I will die for it. That's not just James' experience. That's the Christian experience. That's the Christian experience. And James is going to attack the people who say, you hypocrites. You hypocrites who say you believe and yet you look no different than anyone else. And it's hard to hear, but it's coming from a guy who experienced it. And then in that first verse, James calls himself a servant. A servant. Now, it's a little bit different. Every apostle kind of writes, and even within multiple letters, Paul writes and describes himself differently. And you think it might be tempting for James to pull rank a little bit, right? As he's writing this letter, like, you know, James, the brother of Jesus, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, greetings. You know, and to kind of like, kind of come with authority and, and come with some sense of accomplishment. But instead, he just simply identifies himself as James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we're so quick to dismiss people who don't have the pedigree and don't have the education, don't have the expertise, don't have the initials after their name. And James certainly could have all those things in a sense for his culture, but he doesn't list those things. 
And I think most of us would read over that and go, yeah, James the servant. Okay. Let me just pause for a second and think about something. If you were going to write a letter to fellow Christians, how would you identify yourself? I mean, really. How would you identify yourself? And I started thinking of all the things that I could identify, all the masks that I wear, not in a negative sense, just the different roles I play. And if I was to talk about identifying self, would it be, you know, Sam the father? Sam the husband? Sam the preacher? The pastor? Sam the teacher? Would it be Sam the welder? Which I'm not. The office manager? I mean, what is the core of my identity? And maybe I would get a little spiritual. Sam, the follower of Jesus. Well, there's lots of ways to follow Jesus, right? Sam, the believer of Jesus. Okay, I believe Jesus. Sam, the worshiper of Jesus. Oh, that's getting a little deeper. But Sam, the servant of Jesus? That seems a little bit different. I mean, think about it. I can follow Jesus from a long distance. I still see you, Jesus. I'm coming. It'll take me a little bit longer, but I see you there. Right? Just because you're a follower of Jesus may not mean exactly what we think it means. A believer in Jesus, James makes the point in his, in his scripture there that even the demons believe. Well, what does that say? I'm a believer in Jesus. And? Right? Worshipper of Jesus. Well, that term in itself has kind of become ambiguous. We don't really know what it means. Do you worship Jesus? Yes, I sing songs. You know, what does that really mean? But servant of Jesus, that's that's different. That's active. That that has some meaning to it. Now the Greek word is doulos, which literally means bond servant. You go, okay, what's a bond servant? Well, slavery for the Jewish culture, which James certainly was raised in and is still you know, writing to Jewish Christians. Um, Without question, slavery was part of their culture, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, they would conquer peoples and bring in slaves, and uh, they would have people that were in debt, even within their own community, that would be put into slavery to pay off that debt or to, as a punishment for a crime. There's a lot of different ways that slaves were, were initiated. But if you read Deuteronomy 15, you see an interesting explanation of slavery and, and looking at it two different ways. And one would be maybe your traditional slavery, and one would be what I think James is talking about in a bond slave. And Deuteronomy 15:12 says this, describing this concept of slavery. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord God has blessed you, you shall give to him. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore he shall command you this day. So a beautiful picture. The guy works for six years, pays off his debt, and then he blesses him, gives him wine and food and uh, sheep, so he can pretty much start his own life. But then he continues and he says, but the servant, if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an owl and you'll put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave 
forever. This is the kind of servant that I think James identifies himself as. And he is the servant who has no debt. It's been paid. Not because he worked long enough to pay, mind you, but because Jesus paid everything he owed. And now he chooses, in some sense, because of what God has done for him, to serve not out of duty, rather to serve freely out of response of the love that God has shown him and the joy that it brings him forever. I mean, it's, it's the most clearest picture of the gospel, I think. A bondservant is the epitome of devotion. He's not devoted out of fear. He's not devoted out of regard, but out of love, with disregard for his own interests. He's a slave by choice, a servant by choice. On its basic level, a slave is simply following the master without regard to your own will, your own emotions, and your own desires. I mean, a bond service to Jesus is a comprehensive devotion to God and His will. It's not just, yeah, I serve you every now and then. I mean, I usher, hand out stuff, serve the kids. No, a servant, lifelong, all-encompassing devotion. And it's active. It's not like, I'm a slave now and... All right, thanks. I'll just stay and hang out. No, you're a slave. The guy who says, I will continue to be your servant. He could go free and have his own servants, but he decides to stay and be a servant who continues to serve and continues to do the will. He is not some passive devotee, which I think is, unfortunately, an attitude that's been fostered in Christian churches, maybe even specifically Reformed churches. And it creates this cheap grace, like, oh, I'm saved. Versus this commitment to serve your Lord. And the bondservant, it's not just a way in life. It's a way of life. And I think there's a difference. It's not just a way in life, like something you do additional. It's a complete way of life, where everything we say and think and do is secondary to our relationship with God and governed by our relationship with God. Think about that. Most people, come on, let's be honest. I know no one's talking right now. If you feel like tickles or whatever, it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit. Most people wear their Christianity, if you're a Christian, if you're not, forgive me because you probably see this a lot, as if it's a backpack, you know? And we put it on every now and then, and we walk in it when we feel like it. We're all wearing our backpacks Sunday morning between 9 and noon. Got my Jesus backpack on. When we get home, we put it in the closet. The very fact that it is a backpack is a problem. We're talking about a complete life transformation. Our faith, and James makes this point, is not about a practice you just do occasionally. It is a complete all-encompassing attitude where the Lordship of Jesus governs everything. Where you don't think about your finances without thinking about the Lordship of Jesus. You don't think about your parenting without thinking about the Lordship of Jesus. You don't think about anything without being governed and filtered through the Lordship of Jesus first and foremost. And he talks about trials in the first one, and we all are like, yeah, you know, Christians just got to grit and trust. And like, well, there is some truth in that, but it's not just grit and trust and get through. It's trust that God is working. We encounter, if you are a Christian, 
trials differently than the rest of the world. There's a difference. That's faith. But we wear it sometimes as if it's just a practice. And he says, look, this isn't something you kind of do occasionally. I'm getting a stinking earring. It's not like you change it every now and I feel like wearing a diamond stud today. I don't think I'll take this off or no earring at all. Back then, you got a ring and it never left you. It was with you when you died. That is a type of faith. Not service at you like, you know what, Master? I remember a couple years ago, you offered to let me go. I'll, I'll take you up on it now. Dude, you got a ring in your ear now. Okay? I don't think that person would even have that question anyway. And then he writes to Jews in a very strange way. His audience describes himself as a servant. And then he writes to Jews. He's a, he's a pastor writing. That's important because he doesn't write like a theologian. He writes as a pastor. He uses the word brothers 14 times. And he includes himself in a lot of things he talks about. Even in talking about the weaknesses of the tongue. When he says no man can master the tongue, he's including himself in that, which is refreshing. But he uses some kind of unfamiliar terms here. Describing his original audience, he says he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, the diaspora, or the dispersion, or, or the scattering, if you will, is a common reference to when the Jews were deported after being conquered. Israel had a couple tribes in the northern kingdom, and then Judah in the south. So they had a couple tribes when the Syria came in, and they exiled them, and they were dispersed amongst the world, not in their homeland anymore. And then when Babylon came and conquered the southern kingdom, same thing, right? They dispersed them everywhere. So he's making some reference to that historically. There's also a bit of dispersion going on as you go through the New Testament and the book of Acts. And you begin to see as the church was built and Saul shows up and starts persecuting them. Jesus said in the beginning, I want you to go to Judea and Samaria and all the earth. And they were sticking out in Jerusalem. So Saul started persecuting. Next thing you know, I guess we're going to leave Jerusalem now because they were all being killed. So they moved out. And so in some sense, they're also dispersed because of the persecution going on. At this time and before. But, without question, as pastor of the Jerusalem church, there are a lot of Jewish Christians. And we may be tempted just to kind of think, well, my audience just must be for them. And I believe that there are a lot of Jews, but it's not just national Israel he's speaking to. I think he's, in many ways, speaking to what is God's spiritual nation of Israel. And he is, I think, trying to emphasize that concept of one people, God's people, the same people that he started in the Old Testament and he saw fulfillment in the new covenant under Jesus of what he intended his people to be. That one gathering of people that believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And in First Peter, or Peter uses the same thing in First Peter, the same language. And he describes who he's talking about. In First Peter 1, 2, he says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, describes himself to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And he names the places, Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ. And he describes those people in that dispersion as the people who believe in Jesus. And so I think that's what he's talking. So in many ways, we are, the church is, Israel. In that sense. And what James Wright is, is more than just a... And this is when you think of it that way. Especially after our study of Exodus. 
he's writing more than just this moralistic rubric of, okay, where am I on the Christian scale of how good I'm doing? He's writing it just as Moses wrote the books of the law, instructed by God to do so. And he, what he was writing was less of, here are the rules, although certainly there are laws. It was what it means to be a worshiper of God. What it means to be the people of God. And Paul speaks about this concept where he talks about Jews. And he's like, you know, Jews aren't just of the flesh. They're Jews of the heart. And he makes the point in Romans, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And dare we say that James could write in some way the same spirit, in the same way, speaking of Christians, that a Christian is not a Christian who's one just in voice and religious routine, but a Christian is one who's of the heart, and that heart that has been changed cannot help but bleed into action. And so as with Israel, in a very real way, James here, James here talks about, or talks to the people of God, and as he describes this way of living, it's a, the very identity of the people he's describing. <clears throat> how they live, how they think, how they feel, how they experience a world inside a world, if you will. That's what Israel was. Israel was a, a nation centered on God that lived differently and distinct from the people outside of them, but they were all hostile. It's really no different than how the church is to live today. We're still living in this place where we live differently. We are called to live differently. We're viewing the world differently. Those who are in the Lordship of Christ look different, experience difference, and the world outside is certainly still hostile toward God. And so a study of retrofaith is not a study to make Christianity like relevant for today. It's to make it actually biblical. We look back to the, the 50s AD, if you will, to, to maybe recapture those things that we think are maybe archaic, maybe outdated, like, really, that's all it is? It's the simplicity of the essentials of faith. And something without question has to happen to an individual. Something has to happen to an individual who has confessed the gospel and believed in his heart. And genuine faith produces something. Genuine faith produces something. Jesus said it would. And this is a really hard verse to hear I'm going to read. And I think we skip over it because it makes us uncomfortable. In John 15, 7, Jesus says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. Oh, wonderful. Let's read verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now, I know how that feels to hear that, but the book of James is incredibly instructive, incredibly piercing. But we don't prove that we're Christians so that God will accept us. We confess and believe that God has accepted us through faith in Jesus and our works prove that that's true. In other words, they affirm that we are transformed. We don't work so that God will accept us or for fear that he might reject us. Jesus has done all of the work. There is no matter of work we can do. 
So when Jesus says, so prove, he could say, so prove that you've been transformed. So prove that your heart has been changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It will be seen by your fruit. And that's hard for us to read. And many of us recoil at the idea of God expecting us to live a particular way. Of expecting us to sacrifice. Expecting us to love. In our mind, we think that's great, but expectations, what about freedom? What about the liberty of the gospel? What about grace and all these things? If your heart has genuinely encountered the truth of the gospel of Jesus, if your heart has genuinely been transformed by God, the hard practical truths of James will build your faith. It will draw you nearer to God. And it will reveal perhaps a new sense of clarity how to actually live the gospel you confess. Now, these are not just Christian living suggestions like, okay, let's just go get the Christian living book of the day. Uh, These are what I would describe more as gospel living commands. And even though James only mentions Jesus' name twice, once in that title, he only mentions the name twice, the whole book is about Jesus You cannot separate Christian living and Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Now I'm going to live a moral life. The mission of our church is to proclaim the gospel and to teach others to live like Jesus. Empowered by Jesus, through Jesus. And I'll give you a little survey or review of what the whole book, as I close, what it's going to be about. Here's what James talks about. He talks about trusting as we suffer trials like Jesus did. He talks about fighting temptations like Jesus did. He talks about taking responsibility for sin like Jesus did. He talks about seeking God's will like Jesus. About giving our wealth away like Jesus. God, who had everything. He talks about helping those in need who don't deserve it and are unlovable like Jesus. He talks about loving our neighbors and our friends and our enemies Like Jesus did. He talks about judging those around us like Jesus. Submitting our plans to God like Jesus did. Controlling our tongue like the only one person that did like Jesus. Keeping commitments like Jesus. Praying like Jesus. Crying out to God like Jesus. And confronting sin in others like Jesus. We like to do those things without Jesus and it's not possible. And there's a battle raging in all of our hearts individually. There's a civil war in our heart against the old nature that wants to creep up against us. And I do believe that the evil one is going to give you, the deceiver is going to tell you some lies. They will tell you that as you go through this study, a lot of us are going to want to check out. Because it sounds just so moralistic. And those things aren't really that important. Or some of us are going to try to reinterpret. That's not what it really says. Give your, give your wealth away. I mean, what does it mean to really love your neighbor? And we're going to want to spiritualize it so much to get away from the practicality. Or some of us are going to be deceived and be told, you know, actually, you're not bad at that. You're pretty good. You're doing well. And it's going to be a lie. And you're going to go on and what is a vanilla paste pudding faith. 
that actually isn't evidence that there's any transformation in your heart. And my prayer for all of us, including myself, is that the Holy Spirit will break through all of our resistance and will break us to show in reality how much, and I include myself in this, how much we actually don't love God, but we love ourselves tremendously. And how much we pretend, pretend, even pretend really good like we love others, we actually probably hate them. And we need to repent, a lot of us, of our view of a lot of different types and kinds of people. And I say that from a heart that's already been broken as I've been studying this. Not because I'm pridefully got it together. And I'm asking you to walk through this time alongside of me where the Holy Spirit breathes new life into some things we might have dismissed as old-fashioned, archaic, or maybe, quite frankly, you just got into the routine of religion. And you've lost the radical, now, retro faith that is a belief in Jesus. That's beautiful and simple and alluring. And we'll close with communion as we do every Sunday. And there's a reason why we don't pass the plate. We used to pass, I mean, when churches I've been in prior to planting, it was always you pass the plate and you get that little square that gets like stuck in your teeth. You know what I'm talking about? And everyone would pass the plate and you almost felt like you should take it out of obligation. It became very routine. And communion became something that was just one of the things we do. And you begin to lose what's actually going on here. Why would Jesus say to celebrate this every time we gather in remembrance of Him? We do it once a month, right? So we do it every Sunday. And my prayer is that today, you approach it a little bit differently. There's a couple things that never happen, I shouldn't say never, rarely happen outside of a gathering like this. Rarely do you get to sing corporately together. Rarely, if ever, do you ever sit and take communion and have a, somewhat of a spiritual experience with your Savior as an individual. And it's much more than taking a piece of bread and just dipping some juice and going, oh, I got my routine, I did it, all right. Sit in the moment of thinking what's going on here. The body that's broken for you. The blood that's shed for you. That cleanses you from your sin because you could not cleanse yourself. That denotes and declares, and you confess when you take that, transformation. You confess that the Lord is the Lord of your life. That He has turned you into a different person. That you desire to live differently. Don't take that communion, which is very active. You have to get up and go. And no one's watching, you know, well, Tina didn't take it today. That's between you and your God. But we do have this experience together. As you come, there's something happening. You are confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised from the dead and that He governs your life. He governs it. James will give us a list of stuff that we cannot possibly live up to. This is a declaration of that fact. And that only through Christ are you able to do it. So I pray, take your time this time. Don't get stuck in the routine. Don't get stuck in that this is what I do because I'm a Christian. If you can't describe yourself as Joe Blow, servant of Jesus, but you may be a follower, a believer, if you're a servant, he's got servants in his family. A lot of people believe, a lot of people confess, not as many serve. 
I just pray to you. Take some time to think about that. Let's pray. Father God, I give you glory and praise for all that you are doing in my heart and the heart of those people here, Father, who are going to study your word together. I pray, Lord, that you will break our hearts. That you'll show us where our faith has become routine or perhaps we've progressed past you, so we think. Father, bring us back to the basics of faith. The basics that express a complete dependence upon you. That express our need for your wisdom. That express a trust in you though the world is falling apart. That express such a desperate cry for forgiveness, Lord, that we might be empowered to live differently in this world. I pray you will transform us, that we might be servants and not just followers, not just believers, but genuine, transformed worshipers who love you and who go out and can't help but bleed out that love into other people. May you govern our lives. May you break through our resistance. And may you redeem us and refresh us again. Father, 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us today in a new way. Reignite our faith today. In your Son's blood, we desperately pray. Amen.